one show gives you the information that can change and shape your life. The IMA Doctors. Get straight talk and honest answers to your healthcare questions from the team of doctors at IMA Healthcare. It is the IMA Doctors Show here on KFGO. We, we have Dr. Michael Blankenship from IMA Healthcare with us today. Dr. Blankenship is a board-certified dermatologist who provides comprehensive care to patients with various types of skin conditions and diseases. Welcome back, Dr. Blankenship. Hey, thanks for having me back. Dr. Blankenship, I understand we've got a very sci-fi related show today. We're going to talk all about lasers. Yeah, that's the word. <laughs> okay. Plus, of course, any questions that the listening audience has. So your dermatology department at IMA Healthcare is equipped with state-of-the-art, clinically proven laser treatments to help patients in many ways, I'm sure. So let's just start out by asking, uh, by helping our audience understand what this type of technology is. So Dr. Blankenship, why, why are we using lasers? Uh, lasers are able to very selectively target certain things in the skin so we can, for instance, target blood vessels, leaving the other skin behind or vice versa. It can also be used to remove foreign objects from the skin, such as tattoos. So, I mean, really? the, the laser removal that I think we hear the most about is like the laser hair removal. Yeah, that's for sure one of the most common laser treatments that are done in America today. Yep. And um, and what would you think, I mean, is that going to, is, are there other laser treatments that are going to become like as sort of. As common. As um, common as that? Probably not. That's probably going to remain one of the more common laser procedures, at least for the foreseeable future, unless some new technology comes out that we're not really thinking about right now. Sure. You know, removal of hair is a very common um desire for patients and does it does it is it gone forever that might be a stupid question but. um well so the la the hair follicles that are destroyed by the laser those particular ones are gone forever however the body will make new terminal hairs in the area and the lasers don't always remove 100 percent of the hair uh, most patients if we can remove 85 percent of the hair they consider themselves hair free and so that's kind of the, that's kind of the goal but touch-up treatments once or twice a year sometimes are necessary to keep it at that level Okay, so is there any, like, are there any adverse side effects that you talk to your patients about when it comes to laser hair removal? It's like, well, yes, you're going to get rid of the hair, but this might happen. I mean, it stings, especially, you know, on certain areas of the body more than others. Um, so that's probably the number one is just a little bit of discomfort. It's usually quite manageable, though, especially with the new lasers. Um, it is possible, depending on the laser, and there's a couple different wavelengths that can be used, it is possible to cause an opening in the skin if you use too much heat. Um, by damaging blood vessels. That's not common with the most recent lasers. Um, and it can also cause uh, the skin to become either lighter or more darkly pigmented. Typically, it's temporary. Rarely, it can be permanent. Uh, that risk is much more uh, prevalent in people with darker skin. Okay. Um, I've also heard about CO2 treatments. Can you explain how this carbon dioxide process can reduce or remove wrinkles, age spots, scars, all of those things we don't want? Yeah, so the carbon dioxide laser is a very aggressive laser. Its target is water, and it causes the tissue to be vaporized. And so we can use it to destroy, uh, essentially just vaporize down benign lesions that aren't wanted. It can be used in some instances to treat cancerous or precancerous lesions, though not commonly. But by virtue of the damage that it does, it actually stimulates the healing response, and that can tighten skin. It can um, help fill in fine lines, wrinkles, and thicken the dermis. 
Okay, what about people who want to come in for vascular treatments? So, you know, have you ever helped your patients with that type of uh, ordeal? Yeah, so vascular lesions are one of the more common medical reasons to use a laser. Uh, the laser that is uh, pretty much considered the gold standard is uh, called the V-beam laser. And that V is in like Victor. Yeah, V is in vessel. Yeah. Oh, so okay, vessel that makes it yep. much more sense. And so yeah, so yeah, the V beam laser basically heats up the blood flowing through the vessel and then transfers that heat to the vessel wall, basically kind of flash frying it. Okay. So I if, literally had to Google like vascular lesions. Like, what are we talking about when you say that? Um, it goes the range from uh, telangiectasias, which are those little uh, spidery blood vessels that people get on their face, um, either from rosacea or from sun damage. Um, there are common vascular birthmarks called port wine stains, which are very frequently oh, yeah. treated. Um, and then there are benign but bothersome growths. Uh, such as lobular capillary angiomas, which are these little balls of um, small blood vessels, which just kind of spontaneously pop up in areas of trauma, and they're painful and they bleed, and so they can be destroyed with the laser as well. Oh my gosh, I had one of those. Yeah, the they're bottom, kind of pain, aren't they? Oh my gosh, it was awful. I couldn't yeah. walk. Yeah. And I had it because I was pregnant, and I was like, I just need to get this baby out of me, and then I need yeah. to figure out what's at the bottom of my foot. And I went to a podiatrist, and they're like, you might have cancer. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and so they cut it out of me. They yeah. didn't laser. They cut it out of me because they didn't know what it was. And they're like, oh, it turns yeah. out it was just a bunch of blood vessels outside your body. And I was like, what? That's yeah, preg- yeah, pregnancy can can provoke them as well. Yeah. Oh my god! And it was at the on the bottom of my toe. For whatever reason, they really like to grow on the on the palms and the soles. Yeah. Oh, weird! It was so bizarre. I had never heard of any. Okay, so now I know if I get one of those, I can just come get it laser. That would probably be more comfortable than cutting it off. Overall, yes. Yes, and he was like, "It's okay. You just gave birth. It won't be that bad." And I was like, "That's <laughs> not the bar. That's not the bar of pain and trauma that I want to use for everything else." But I was like, I want some numbing agents in there or something. But yeah, it was so bizarre. Dr. Blankenship, I mean, I hear more about lasers all the time. Yeah. Is is it becoming the preferred tool? Um, no. It, so still people ask me, you know, like when I come in to get, you know, cut their cancer off, am I going to use a laser to cut it off or something like that? A lot of the times the old ways are the best. And so, you know, for instance, I prefer the blade if I'm going to be cutting something off of somebody because you get tactile feedback. But the lasers are becoming more prevalent because we're uh, better at, uh, well, we're better at making them. Uh, we're better at making the computers that help us drive them. Um, and they're becoming safer and more effective. So we can use them for indications that we haven't been able to use them for before. Okay. Let's get to some of our text questions. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, let's just move to them for just a moment. Someone says, can the doctor please explain the blue light therapy for different kinds of skin cancers? Yeah. So photodynamic therapy, sometimes called blue light therapy because of the color of the light that activates the medicine, um, is uh, very commonly used for precancerous lesions um, called actinic keratoses. Uh, these are caused by ultraviolet light on sun-exposed skin, and some of them will eventually turn into a type of skin cancer called a squamous cell carcinoma. And so in blue light therapy, what you do is you paint a medication onto the skin called aminolevulonic acid, and that's a pro-drug. So it's not active, but it soaks into the cells, and then you uh, shine light that happens to be blue on top of it, the skin after it's soaked in, and it activates the medication. Um, it burns uh, when it happens, uh, but it's very effective. And it can be used in some instances to treat certain types of small superficial cancers as well. Uh, some people have used it also for warts. I find it not to be quite as effective as some of our other methods for treating cancers and warts, so I typically don't use it for that very often. 
but I do use it for uh, treating precancerous lesions. The light itself is not um, actually a laser, uh, but it, people often refer to it as one. I think that I think we had you on not that long ago when we were talking about how um, the the parameters of when you should go in to sort of have like a skin skin check has changed. Like it's not every year anymore. No, is that right? Yeah. So people with a very sort of normal risk, you know, they haven't had a skin cancer. Skin cancer is not very prevalent in their families. They don't have a high risk occupation or are not on high risk medications. You know, if you're keeping an eye on yourself, there's nothing really causing trouble looking unusually. Most people could go several years between skin exams. Yeah, uh, yeah I and I think it used to be that we were all kind of, we were pushing this every year thing for a while. Yeah, and it's in, you know, prophylactic exams where like you're not worried about anything, uh, you haven't had trouble before. It turns out that those aren't quite as useful as we would hope. Um, the Though if something's on your body that's, worrying you or acting differently or looking differently, that changes the um, face value risk. And so then, yes, then you should come in for a skin exam. Um, Okay, let's get to some of these other questions. Someone says, why do older people bruise so easily on their arms and wrists? Uh, Yeah, so those are called, uh, the fancy word for that, called Bateman's purpura. Uh, It used to be called senile purpura, but that wasn't really enjoyed by our wow. patients. Yeah, so, no, yeah, I know. Don't like that. And the, and the reason is because it used to be seen only at very, very advanced stage. And so the reason why they occur in those areas, well, it can happen anywhere in the body, is because a lifetime of um, ultraviolet light damages the collagen and thins out the skin. So basically your blood vessels have less cushion, less wrapping around oh. them. And so little tiny bumps that wouldn't have done anything when you were 16 shear those blood vessels and then you bleed for a little bit into the skin and you basically make a fancy bruise. And because so many people these days are on anticoagulants or antiplatelet agents for a variety of reasons, um, that slows down the clotting even more. And so we're seeing it at younger and younger uh, ages. Doctor, let's talk about removing tattoos. Yep. It seemed like such a smart idea at 2 o'clock in the morning at that bachelor party, and now I decide I don't want it. So we've come a long way in tattoo removal from its infancy. Yes. What is what is a tattoo removal look and feel like today? Uh, so the first thing to know is it's a lot easier to get one on than it is to get it off, um, both faster and cheaper, um, generally speaking. Uh, so... What happens is the reason the tattoo ink stays in your skin is because the tattoo ink is in particles too large for your body's immune cells to sort of basically gobble up and then move out. And so the so you'd come in for a laser treatment. Depending on the color of the ink, we would use uh, typically one of three wavelengths of light to sort of target that ink. And then the light heats up the tattoo ink in a certain way that actually makes it um, explode. And then the ink is... This, broken into smaller pieces through this thing called the photoacoustic effect. And the small pieces are then gobbled up by the immune cells and then sort of moved out of that area of the skin. And so the treatments are spaced out by about four to six weeks, depending on the area of the body, the, uh, rap, the, you know, the healing rate of the individual patient. And it usually takes several rounds spaced out by four to six weeks. I, would, I tell people, if, you know, most areas, most tattoos expect eight treatments plus or minus two. What about, uh, so let's say you've had the tattoo for 30 years. Does yep. that make a difference from someone who it does. has a t- tattoo for 
30 weeks? Yep, it does. So, you know, over the course of 30 years, your body is going to have moved out some of that ink. The inks tend to be older and those tend to be easier ones to break down. And so, yes, the older a tattoo, typically the easier it is to remove. Occasionally, you will find older tattoos that were put in with India ink or something else like that. And those are very easy to destroy. I can usually strip those away in just a couple of treatments. Um, someone says, this sounds so painful. Just reading it, I was like, made me a little squirmish. Um, someone said, I have an old scar that in livestock words acts like proud flesh, which I, I yep. don't know what that means either. I am annoyed by this thing that grows and usually pull it off. It bleeds and grows back. It was a result of a previous surgery. Yeah, so that sounds like excessive granulation tissue, also sometimes called by its old name of proud flesh. And so that can typically, though sometimes it requires requires a second surgery. Um, it's, it's a result of an over exuberant healing response and you end up with this stuff called granulation tissue, which is part of the normal healing response, but if there's too much of it, the body has trouble sort of going through that into the next step of healing. And so very often we have to remove that, um, either, well, sometimes we do use lasers. Sometimes we use a blade. Yep. Ooh. Ouch. Oh, we numb it's it so, up. Is, it's, is, it's, is it painful? It's Well, I mean, if I didn't put anesthesia in, yes. It would be yeah. I mean, it just sounds painful yeah. that they're ripping it off themselves and bleeding. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, if it's within an old scar, there might not be a whole lot of nerves in the oh, area. So sure. it might not be quite as bad as you're thinking. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It just is making me a little bit. Okay. Someone I mean, said. I can't recommend that. But. Yeah. <laughs> someone said, my 13-year-old daughter believes she's losing a lot of hair, more than normal shedding. Mm-hmm. What could be causing this? She takes a teen multivitamin. Is biotin okay for teenagers? Biotin's fine for teenagers, though most humans, in, uh, actually most humans, but especially in America, probably are not biotin deficient. That's actually relatively difficult to do. Um, there's potentially a nutritional deficiency, vitamin D, um, some of the B vitamins, so that's rare in America. Uh, ferritin, so um, young females are often iron deficient, which can uh, predispose to it. It could also be a physiologic response called telogen effluvium, which is a response to stress, either physical or psychiatric. Uh, That's a self-limited process, though we can sometimes speed up the uh, improvement of that. And then um, there are uh, inflammatory reasons for hair loss as well, uh, such as alopecia areata, um, though that usually presents a little bit differently. Yeah. Uh, I just had a friend dealing with that with her daughter, alopecia and, and hair and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Would you recommend this 13-year-old be seen for something like this before they decide on biotin being the answer? Oh, yeah, for sure. Because, you know, if you think it's especially an uh, unusual and abnormal amount of hair loss, then there could be a metal, metabolic derangement like hypothyroidism that could be causing it. A whole host of things that we can intervene with and treat directly. And if it is one of those... Uh, supplementation with uh, protein, with biotin, with B vitamins is not going to help. Okay. Um, let's talk about vitamin D for just a second. What's the most, you just mentioned that in our yep. in our last thing. Um, do How do you recommend that people get vitamin D? It's interesting because I, I like know I'm deficient. It, we all are, right? I know yep. that that's common and especially it being winter. Mm-hmm. I was trying to look at like what are the different ways that you can find vitamin D and what's the best. Do you have a recommendation about that? So vitamin D3 supplementation is widely available even over the counter. Um, Typically speaking, it's best taken, you know, twice a day, once in the morning, once at night. Um, Somewhere between 800 and 1200 international units is usually sufficient to bring someone up to the normal range. Uh, Though if you start off very deficient, sometimes um, your physician will prescribe a very high dose uh, once weekly supplementation for a few months in order to get you back into the normal range. Um, but yeah, typically it's hard to get from the diet. It's hard to get from 
um, you know, other sources, animal sources. Uh, your skin is involved with only one step of vitamin D synthesis. And so the amount of ultraviolet light that people mm. need to sort of get that is actually relatively small. And there's no difference between the molecule that's taken by mouth, like in a supplement and the stuff that your own body will make. Okay. Um, and then I found it in pill form, but for my kiddos, I found like a dropper where you just do drops in their mouth. Yep. And that's very commonly used, especially for infants. Yep. Yeah. And that's been, I mean, I, I've been using it too. I'm like, it's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. And it doesn't taste too bad. That one no, doesn't taste too bad. Yeah. It doesn't so, at all. Yeah. There's like, there's tasteless ones, but then there's yeah. ones with a little bit of Make taste. Them and it's easy yeah. because vitamin D is one of the fat soluble vitamins. Mm. And so it can be suspended in a whole bunch of stuff and it doesn't taste terrible. Yeah, it's not bad at all. Uh, okay, let's get back to the text club here. Uh, I mean, I, I love this one. As what? an older retired nurse, I always thought if I was 50 years younger and a whole lot smarter, I would have specialized in tattoo removal. <laughs> yep. um, we have back-to-back questions about skin tags. What sure. causes skin tags under the armpit, and can I remove them myself is the first one. So, uh, so, yes, you can remove them yourself. I've seen it done many, many times. Sometimes people clip them. Sometimes people pull them off. Sometimes people strangulate them by tying like dental floss or similar around them. Um, typically speaking, nothing will happen um, because they're relatively small. They're relatively easy to remove in most cases. Though I have seen cases of cellulitis or um, soft tissue infection in the area, especially with the strangulation method, but also with like nail clippers and such. They're very common lesions. They favor areas of friction. There's something about that that seems to set them off. So growing creases under arms, under breasts of females, eyelids are all very common areas for them to occur. If you use um, certain types of medications such as insulin or you have diabetes and the higher your body fat percentage, the more likely they are to occur uh, because a lot of the growth factors that are provoked from those situations actually seem to be able to stimulate their their growth. Well, and that kind of answers the second one. What causes skin tags? All of a sudden I have them all over my neck. They're small in size. Yep. And how do I get... So if someone came in and they said they wanted to get rid of skin tags, you can do that professionally? Yeah, yes. Uh, typically speaking, I will freeze them because uh, cryotherapy or freezing is very effective. It stings a little bit, but we don't even have to numb for it. And they usually just crust off without any open skin permanent marks like scars or pigmentary change. Very uncommon, though possible. Uh, though depending on the location and the characteristics of the actual skin tag, sometimes I will use electricity or cut them off, or sometimes, though rarely, or laser. Someone else wants to know what vitamin or mineral deficiencies can cause leg cramping. Well, a whole host of them. Oh, okay. uh, most, yeah. Um, so just about any electrolyte, if it gets bad enough, can cause muscle dysfunction. Probably the most common ones are potassium, magnesium, um, Calcium uh, can cause it as well. Yeah, I've I've also heard I've always heard that it was potassium. Like I've always heard, like get up if you're so, having leg cramps at night, yeah. get up and eat a banana. Yeah. I don't know why that's so, stuck in my head, but so you usually usually um, if you take someone who's experiencing muscle cramping and you draw their blood and look at the electrolyte levels, it's they're actually normal. So it's it's mm. typically not sort of outside of the normal range that's causing that. Though the, though that can cause it. I've got a question. Um, it's really dry right now. Like it is insanely dry. 
Um, not all lotion is made the same because my wife told me I'm using the wrong lotion on my face. Well, so moisturizers come in a couple different forms. You know, most common ones are oils, lotions, creams, and ointments, and they are actually different things. Uh, okay. typ- typically speaking, the most moisturizing is an ointment, but those things tend to be very sticky. They feel a bit like Vaseline or something similar, and so people often don't tolerate those on their skin, though they do a great job. Um, creams are much more elegant to use than an ointment and they do a lot better job than a lotion, which is pretty much, lotions are mostly water with emulsifiers in them. So if your skin's just a little dry or it's during the summertime, those are perfectly fine to use and there are plenty of good ones on the market. But during the wintertime, I usually recommend people use a cream or an ointment. Okay. What about oils? Where are oils in that? Yep. So um, there are several oils which are used for moisturization. The most common, which is probably coconut oil or olive oil. Of the two, I prefer coconut oil. It can be com- it can be uh, fractionated. Um, and uh, Capri is a brand that has the uh, Eczema Society seal of approval. And that's usually the one that I'll recommend my patients use if they're interested in using an oil. Okay. Fractionated. What does that mean to me? You know, so you know how like some coconut oils, if you look at them in the grocery store, some are like solidified, some are liquid, some have particles of solids within them. And so depending on which, you know, it's a natural product. And so depending on, um, you know, which product comes through the manufacturing process, um, they have different characteristics. And so if they're highly fractionated, you can get things which stay liquid at room temperature or colder, and they tend to go on more smoothly. Sometimes they don't have the odor associated with them. They're not quite as greasy. The other two that I I'm a little bit familiar with that I see everybody talking about for their skin is like the, is it called marula oil? Melaleuca oil. Maybe. Is that the one? Yeah. Maybe. That's often used. Shea butter is another one that's often used. So. And yeah. um, the is it yojoba or? Jojoba. Jojoba. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. I see that one always like marketed yep. for skin and hair yep. as well. It, you know, those are very reasonable ones. The jojoba, I've seen a fair number of patients over the years actually have an allergic reaction to. Oh, so really? I, well, yeah, not very common, but it does yeah. happen. So I, I usually won't recommend those. You know, olive oil, coconut oil, very well tolerated. Most people don't have trouble with those moisturizers. And the one that you you recommended for coconut oil was? Capri. Capri. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. What about when it comes to our lips? Uh, you know, plain old Vaseline does a great job. Comes in these little tiny tins. Aquaphor makes a lip balm that works quite well. But there's a whole host of them out there. O'Keefe's has one. So I've noticed that in the last like couple of years, everyone wants to get into the lip balm game. Yeah, holy moly! Yeah, I know. There, you know. If you walk into like Sephora or something like that, there's a whole there is yeah a whole display full of stuff like that. And so. Like my dad would be lost. He was one tube. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, the chapstick tube. Uh-huh. So yeah. Um, but no, it's yeah, it's a popular thing now. People are making like masks and scrubs and moisturizers and night masks for your lips and stuff like that. So it I is mean, a little overwhelming. Are, is it worthwhile? I mean, a lot of them work well. My yeah. my wife likes them, so I don't use a whole lot of those. But okay. <laughs> and then what happens to you know, like if we do end up with some really flaky skin in certain areas and we end mm-hmm. up scratching that a bunch, I feel like that's when you can start to possibly risk an infection if you're scratching too hard and you open up the skin? Yeah, it's possible. Not as common as people think. But yeah, you can get superficial infection, impetigo, cellulitis, things like that. Or just colonization, overgrowth of the normal skin bacteria can happen as well. Um, You know, people typically when they get sort of to that level, they're actually starting to develop some eczema. And so uh, prescription steroid creams or non-steroid anti-inflammatory creams are usually indicated at that point. A lot of people coming in asking for specific things. You know, like they'll hear, 
oh, a prescription steroid cream. Do, are, do you get a lot of patients who walk in and have an idea of something that um, they I'll have already a, want? Well, they'll walk in very often, won't know the specifics of it, but they'll know like their friend or their family member had, had something. They can't remember the name exactly, but it did a good job for them. And typically speaking, they end up being steroid creams. Ooh, let's talk about light therapy. Man, that's all the rage. That is all the viralness that's happening online. It's like, here, buy these masks and buy these wands that have yellow or red or green or blue or purple lights. Mm -hmm. What's the the rage? Is all the hype warranted? Um, Well, (laughs) so some of the claims made are probably in excess of what can be delivered. Um, The good news is most of those machines are safe. A lot of them are um, LED based. And so the light is not monochromatic, not like a laser is, but it's relatively limited. So you get one predominant color coming through. Uh, There are also uh, devices that physicians use that use LED lights. Um, I don't use typically as many of them uh, because there's typically a laser uh, or a medical light that will be uh, more effective, but they they do have effects. So blue and red can be used certain ways to improve inflammatory acne, at least temporarily. In some patients, there is reasonable evidence that um, certain LED lights might be able to help with healing wounds um, in certain circumstances and possibly even promote some collagen formation. So, But the effects tend to be modest uh, and you have to use them for quite some time to get those results. Okay. Interesting. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, they are sort of like all the rage, so I'm sure, sure you're getting questions about them. Yeah, on the they're regular. very popular and they look impressive. Yes, so. exactly. <laughs> and you just get a couple of people to make a really impressive video about how much they've seen yeah. in their, you know, yeah. how, how much improvement they've seen. And all of a sudden, everybody's talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a question, you can text into 35270. Someone says... Um, agreed on baseline for lips, haven't found a lip balm that doesn't irritate. So back to the basics for me. As for the Melaleuca company, they have Renew Lotion. Many people have reported helps with hands and skin issues. They buy it by the biggest size. Yeah, you know, same way with some other things like O'Keeffe's or Bag Balm. You know, just really thick um, creams or ointments. They can really help a lot, so... Hey, good text in the 35270. Um, someone else says, my daughter has horrible back acne. Her doctor prescribed a medication, but it burned and hurt worse. Is there anything you would suggest? So truncal acne, sort of chest, shoulders, back, um, can be quite challenging because the skin on the trunk, even though we think of it as being like, you know, tougher than the skin on the face, for a variety of reasons, can't tolerate a lot of the topical anti-acne treatments. A lot of those are much better tolerated by the face. And so she may have been prescribed a retinoid, uh, which can decrease oil production and lead to quite significant irritation on the trunk. A lot of people cannot tolerate topical retinoids. Typically speaking, if we have a lot of truncal involvement with acne, we're going to have to use an oral medication. Uh, Females have uh, several options. Oral contraceptive pills can help some. Um, there's an old blood pressure medication called spironolactone, which can be very useful, especially for inflammatory acne. It tends to be very well tolerated. And then if it's very severe, then definitive therapy with isotretinoin, sometimes called Accutane, um, is probably the most effective thing that we have right now. Um, someone else says causes of cellulitis. Well, cellulitis is a, uh, it's a nonspecific phrase. It simply means inflammation of the soft tissue. So when people say cellulitis, they often mean infectious cellulitis. 
And that is typically speaking, not in sort of an unusual organism, but tends to be something that lives on our skin normally, like staph or streptococcus. Uh, they, you know, a small injury in the skin, uh, the bacteria that are living on us normally sort of set up shop, uh, take over and then start to divide, get in front of our body. And that's usually what causes infectious cellulitis. There are other organisms, pseudomonas and, and a wide variety of others, which can cause cellulitis, but it's typically staph or strep. Um, someone says marula oil is also a thing different than melacaluca. I have a friend who raves about it. Yeah, I know it is. It's just one of those oils that's sold over the counter for face. Yeah, and I mean, it's like yeah. that one I'm not as familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. It's, it's one of those, like you're talking about, there's a lot of stuff on the shelves. Yeah. <laughs> this would be one of them. That's true. Um, I don't know how you keep up with all of like the products for people's face. Oh, uh, I mean, they come and go, but a lot of times they all have the same basic ingredients in them, just slightly different. So, sure. You know, like the over-the-counter anti-acne treatments have, you know, three or four things that are in all of them. So. so if one doesn't work, you just move to the other active ingredient? Yeah, though, you know, some are much more effective than others. So Sure. Okay. Um Another question about, oh, this one just says autocorrect was supposed to say agreed for Vaseline. I always just, I, I, I default back to Vaseline and Aquaphor for almost everything. I was telling Dr. Blankenship, like that Aquaphor stick that they sell now, game changer, man. Game changer. I'm obsessed with it. I love it. Dr. Blankenship, can we talk about uh, just simple nicks and cuts and stuff like that? A few uh, a few times back when you were on, we were talking about some people have the routine of like, oh, I got cut with a kitchen knife and it's the bleeding is stopped. So it's not an emergency room visit. Mm -hmm. But then I put Neosporin on it and then I wrap it with two Band-Aids and then I, you know, I let it breathe at night. And I think we all have a routine that comes to the best way to heal something on our skin. But are there things we should be thinking about? I mean, typically small injuries, just keep them covered with a bandage and Vaseline is perfectly adequate. Um, the evidence for triple antibiotic ointments like Neosporin offering more than the Vaseline base that they're in is quite modest. Um, a lot, and a lot of people will become allergic to neomycin and bacitrace and two of the active ingredients in there, up to 40% of the population with repeated exposure. So I typically don't recommend those. If I think that an antibiotic is necessary, there are prescription or oral versions that can be prescribed to cover it. But m mo most of the time, if you just wash it with normal soap and water, pat dry, add some Vaseline and throw a normal bandage on it until it's healed. That'll do the job for most minor injuries. That's what so interesting that you be can become allergic to those. I had never thought about that. Yeah, neomycin in particular, especially when exposed to open wounds on the lower legs, uh, seems to happen quite a bit. Interesting. Ugh. Yeah, I guess <laughs> just stick with Vaseline. It, right? Going back to the Vaseline uh -huh. conversation again, we just, it can't stop. Um, if someone has um, a little... Uh, Something that they've had checked out. I have, I have uh, someone in my life who has like this little, I don't know, bump that they've had checked out several times. It's fine. Nothing to worry about. Um, at what point does it just become a thing where you should just remove it? I forget what they even called it. Well, but... I mean, if it's benign, we always leave that up to the patient because uh, only they know how bothersome it is. So when it gets sure. to the point they'd want to trade it for a small procedure, then that's the time <laughs> to take it off. And if that day never comes, that's fine too. They want to trade it for a small procedure. Yep. Um, uh, that's so funny. Most of these are in and out 
same day, right? I mean, in an office setting for a lot of this, you know, like take take the skin tag. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's done during a normal office visit. Um, Surgeries that require a repair with sutures, I typically schedule for a 45 or 60 minute. Never takes that long, but just so we have the time to do it or if there's any complications. But yeah, it's essentially all local anesthesia outpatient. Some areas, some things, some patients won't tolerate that very well. So I refer to some of my surgical colleagues so they can bring them to the operating room and either sedate them or knock them all the way out just for comfort level. But yeah, most of the time it's all patient. Um, Someone else, earlier we were talking about mineral or vitamin deficiencies. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the other ones that I see a lot is magnesium, that that has to be on your skin. Is that true? Can you take that as a supplement or does it need to be sort of in a lotion form or rubbed on the bottom of your feet or on your legs is what I've read. Oh, no. So, I I mean, orally or IV is typically how we replete magnesium deficiencies. Okay. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a char- typically a charged ion. I'm not certain that it would even be able to get through the top layer of skin into your body and be absorbed at any significant level through intact skin. Oh, interesting. Um, I feel like a lot of people are pushing it because this is the big, like, sleepy supplement now. Everyone's saying oh. like that you need to put it, get it in lotions and take it before you um, go to bed and all of that kind not, of stuff. Yeah, I'm not certain that there's any really strong, you know, double blind evidence that um, topical application magnesium is useful for most instances. It's almost always given orally or IV if it's needed. Interesting. Yep. And is it one of those supplements that you shouldn't take unless you know you absolutely need it? At normal levels, no. I mean, it's part of even a lot of antacids, for instance. Oh, um, okay. Yep, um, magnesium oxides, for instance. Um, so it's, you know, at normal levels of supplementation from over-the-counter uh, products, you're very unlikely to get into trouble because it is water-soluble. And so typically speaking, if your body doesn't need it, it just urinates it out. Okay, okay. Which is what they what a lot of people say happens with most vitamins, right? The water-soluble ones, yeah. yeah. A, D, E, and K are fat-soluble, but yep. Okay. Interesting. Um, I I feel like magnesium is one of like the big like there's all these calm and the powders that they come in now and people are making like sleepy time drinks with tart cherry juice and magnesium and all of these things to try to sleep better. I mean, so, it, it's the new sleep craze. Yeah, if it works for you, great. Okay, mm-hmm. okay, sounds good. Um, the I May Doctor Show here once a month on KFGO. It's the third Monday of the month. You can join us February 19th for the next one. It is going to be with infertility physician, Dr. Stephanie Dahl. IMA Healthcare is focused on whole person, preventative, and specialized medical care. Instead of simply treating a symptom, they'll work to find the source of that symptom and what it means to your overall health. Dr. Michael Blankenship, are you still taking new patients? Uh, yep. Uh, okay. yep. All the time. Sounds good. You can call them at 701-280-2033. Some same-day appointments, which are absolutely clutch. Our family has used them several times. Yeah, they go fast, though. Yeah, they do. Call right away in the morning, 701-280-2033. Save that in your phone at, as IMA Healthcare. They're located on 45th Street and 32nd Avenue South across from Mexican Village. You can also visit them online and read more about their physicians at imahealthcare.com. Dr. Blankenship, thanks so much. Thanks for having me.